Beloved, please take your Bibles and turn with me uh, to two passages this evening, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8, as well as Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8, and Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. And please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then if you'll flip over to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we come to this subject once again this evening, the subject of a godly home and in particular Christian parenting, godly parenting, Lord, those of us who are parents realize how short we fall of this task. And Father, we thank you for your grace and forgiveness. We also thank you, Lord, for the instruction and the guidance and the direction that you give to us in your word as it concerns these foundational aspects of Christian living. Father, we do pray that our homes would be godly, that our children would know you and love you and embrace you and live for you. And we pray you'd give us wisdom as parents. Father, we pray for wisdom for all parents in this congregation. Those who could not be with us tonight, particularly, Lord, we pray for parents of, of younger children. We pray that good patterns of godliness would be established in the home. And ultimately, Lord, that we would look to you and to your son, Jesus Christ, for the grace and the strength to persevere and to be faithful. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I've said it before that every Christian parent knows that when it comes to raising children, there is no endeavor more challenging or rewarding or terrifying or humbling or exhausting or wonderfully gratifying. There's truly nothing like it. Raising children unlocks a part of your heart that you never knew you had and exposes weaknesses that you never thought existed from the earliest days of a pregnancy, an indescribable parental love forms for the child. It's a fierce love 
that will go to any lengths to protect them from the wickedness of this world and lead them to the fountain of grace and truth in Jesus Christ. There's a wonderful uh, song uh, by Keith Green, uh, yes, of the Jesus movement in the early 70s. And he is singing about his son, and uh, he is essentially crying out in this song uh, that God would protect his son from the wickedness and the lies of the world, and that his son would embrace Christ, who is the truth, and embrace the grace that is found in him. It's something we all, of course, have, have prayed as Christian parents. As I was thinking about it, Christian parenting is kind of like the experience of running a first marathon. In the training period, there is an overconfidence. You think to yourself, how hard can it be? You secretly look down on others who have run marathons before and shared how they'd hit the wall and had a hard time finishing, and you immediately question their stamina and their training regimen. Must have been something wrong with their training. In similar fashion, those parenting, those, rather those preparing for parenthood often think to themselves that if they just punch in the right parental formula or implement the right set of rules and schedules that the next great book tells you to punch in, that all will go smoothly, all will be fairly painless and predictable. You think to yourself, those who have problems with their children must not be doing it right. They must not have prepared like I have. When you see kids acting out in church or in a restaurant, you think, when I have kids, they'll never act like that. Then the race starts. For the first few miles, there's a lot of excitement and support from cheering fans. You are a little tired, but overall, you're feeling quite energized. Similarly, in the early days of parenting, there's a lot of initial excitement and support, baby showers, family help, meals, encouragement, attention from friends, and then the newness wears off. And the fans suddenly, suddenly stop cheering. Everyone seems to disappear. And as the race goes on and your mileage moves into double digits, your legs begin to get heavy. The tiredness begins to affect you emotionally. And you wonder at times if you can go on. Other runners around you seem so happy and unbothered by the race. They're taking Instagram selfies while you're dying. You begin to feel bad about the way you look down on others before you experienced the race yourself. Correspondingly, as your kids grow into toddlerhood and on to adolescence, your overconfidence in parenting has been utterly decimated. There have been more sleepless nights and tears and challenges than you ever imagined, and sometimes you've wondered if you could carry on. But in your weakness, you've learned to trust the Lord more. In your weakness, you've learned to trust the Lord more, to rely upon Him and to draw from His infinite strength. You've realized that control over your children is an illusion and that the best way forward is to prayerfully entrust your children to the one who is truly in control and to remember that ultimately your children are not yours at all. They're the Lord's. It's the most freeing thing as a parent to hold your children with an open hand and say, they are the Lord's ultimately. They are not Hours. So you keep going, one foot after the other, 
humbled to the dust, experiencing joy and sorrow, daily drawing near to the throne of grace for help and realizing that the way to finish well is not through the wooden implementation of parenting formulas or worldly methods, but rather through prayerful reliance upon the Lord and His Word and a humble commitment to parenting with humility, patience, and love. And when not doing that, confessing your sins to a Lord who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Many of you, of course, are running this marathon right now, and you are at different stages in the race. Some of you are just starting out. Some of you are about to start. As I see some of you uh, out there uh, this evening, you are about to start being parents Um, Some of you have started, you've been running the race for many years. Some of you are empty nesters and have learned that parenting doesn't ever fully stop. And prayers for your children and your grandchildren continue to multiply as the years roll on. I forget who it was recently uh, that we were speaking with and and, uh, they said something or something was said to the effect of uh, don't worry, your parenting will be done in about 50 years. It's okay. Just be patient. The reality is, when you're a parent, you're always a parent. When you're a grandparent, you are always a grandparent. And those burdens and desires to pray and to encourage and to support are always there. Well, over the next uh, couple of weeks, we're going to consider some important biblical principles for raising covenant children and cultivating godly parenting in our lives and in our homes. And as I've already introduced this, you know that I am not in favor of putting forward, you know, the seven steps to, 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 to you know, uh, the, the godly home. Uh, there, there can be helpful books and helpful booklets and helpful pamphlets on this subject that can give us good principles and even reinforce some of the things that I'm going to uh, preach tonight. But uh, it's, it's, it's not the right approach to approach these things in a formulaic way. Um, these can so often be empty promises. And life isn't as straightforward as a lot of these books will tend to uh, promote. And so we go at this with prayer and patience and reliance upon uh, the Lord. And um, uh, for those who, who do not have children, this is an opportunity for you to gain some biblical wisdom on, on parenting. And, and before we jump into the, the meat of the subject, our subject for this evening, I want to mention... Uh, how encouraged I have been over the years as the pastor of Christ Church Presbyterian. I have uh, witnessed such kind, uh, such uh, godly, uh, principled parenting uh, in the life of this congregation. And, uh, uh, and I've learned from you. Uh, and so I'm humbled to be even standing here uh, teaching on these, these matters. Um, I have learned so much from you and will continue uh, to do so, but in order to really understand some of the nuts and bolts of Christian parenting in a godly home, we need to understand the theological underpinnings, the foundations. Um, I believe so much is lost in Christian parenting and in uh, cultivating a godly home because we don't understand uh, the basics and the foundation of why it is we are to parent our children as we are uh, to parent them. Uh, and so this brings us to our, uh, our subject for, um, for this evening. And there are three questions that I want to answer 
There are three questions I want to answer. Number one, how should we view our children? How should we view them? You know, whether you're in different Christian traditions, they will view their children differently. How do we view our children uh, here at Christ Church? Uh, Secondly, what should we teach our children? What should we teach them? And then thirdly, how should we view ourselves as parents? How should we view ourselves as parents? First of all, how should we view our children? This will be the longest section um, of my message for tonight. How should we view our children? In short, we should view our children covenantally. We should view our children covenantally, that is, in relation to God's covenant of grace and the clear command in both Old and New Testaments to raise our children in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. Our children aren't little pagans. Our children, children of of, of Christian families aren't heathens. You know, we kid around, right? You little heathen, come over here. Um, you know, the vipers and diapers. Uh, uh, we, you know, we understand that our children are born in sin. They're born in sin in this world. But we do not treat them as if they are pagans or heathens. We do not evangelize our children. We raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We nurture them. Yes, part of that nurture is calling them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent of their sin. Uh, It's a a part of the Christian life, right? To, To repent of our sin and to believe the gospel. It's not something we do once and then we go on with the Christian life and never think about that again. We do it all of the time. Uh, And so that's a part of the nurture, but it is nurture and not, as we understand, evangelizing those who do not know um, the gospel or the Christian faith. Um, Earlier, I read from two passages, Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6. In both passages, we learn how we are to think of our children. They are children of the covenant. Children of the covenant. But what does that mean? Well, here's where it's important to understand the basics of covenant theology. So, um, I hope you had your coffee this afternoon. Um, We're going to dig into a little bit of covenant theology here to get some theological foundations. And and for some here, this could be a major paradigm shift in the way you think about the Christian home. God relates to His creation through sovereignly imposed covenants. Let me say that again. God relates to his creation through sovereignly imposed covenants. What is a covenant? A covenant is a bond or contract between two parties. These covenants are constituted or made up of promises, stipulations, privileges, and responsibilities. Covenants are constituted of promises, stipulations, privileges, and responsibilities. And the two overarching covenants that God made with mankind are the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. We have two overarching covenants that God has made. The covenant of works, which He has made with all of creation, and the covenant of grace, which He has made with His elect. Those are the two overarching covenants. Covenants. Now, uh, these two, uh, Reformed theology rather, has always underlined, always emphasized these two covenants as essential 
for understanding the categories of creation, fall, and redemption. So, the covenant of works. What is the covenant of works? This is also referred to by theologians as the covenant of creation or the covenant of life. This is the covenant that God made with Adam as the head of humanity in Genesis 2, 15 through 17. What did God say in this covenant to Adam as he entered into this relationship with Adam and through Adam, all of humanity? That upon perfect obedience, he and his posterity would live forever in fellowship with God in the garden paradise. Remember, Adam was created with original righteousness, and he had the ability to obey God and to essentially go through this period of probation and, and, and live for God's glory and live in a perfect way because he had original righteousness and he was without sin. And so he could move through this period of probation, whatever the period that may have been, refrain from sinning against God and with perpetual, perfect obedience, personal obedience, he would uh, gain salvation for himself and for all of his posterity. But if he sinned and ate of the forbidden fruit, then he and all of his posterity would be cast out of the garden and be alienated from God and die. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it states in question and answer 12, what special act of providence did God exercise toward man in the estate wherein he was created? Answer, when God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life or works with him. Upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. Of course, we know what happened. Adam sinned against God, and thus in him and all of mankind fell in sin and were expelled from the garden and separated from perfect fellowship with God and sent east of Eden, experiencing the thorns of the field and the pains of childbirth and the awful miseries of sin. Did Adam uphold and keep the covenant of works? No, he did not. He broke the covenant and was thus expelled from the garden into misery and sin. And not just Adam, but all of humanity after him. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Hosea 6 verse 7, Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Romans 6 23, The wages of sin is death. Well, thankfully, this isn't the end of the story. Thankfully, we are not left to ourselves to earn our way back to God, to attempt to fulfill the covenant of works by obeying God's law perfectly. Because as we were reminded of this morning, this is impossible. Thankfully, God didn't say, okay, Adam, you and all of humanity have broken this covenant. The only way for you to be saved is to obey me according to my standards and keep this covenant once again. Well, to do so would have been of course, impossible because of our indwelling sin. Original and actual sin have left us depraved and helpless to make peace with God. In fact, in our natural selves, we don't want to make peace with God. We hate God in our natural selves. 
We want to live apart from Him and do things our own way. We have no spiritual health in us, as the Book of Common Prayer states. In our fallen condition, we are dead in transgressions and sins. We are covenant breakers. We are not covenant keepers. We cannot save ourselves, and so we need a Savior. And this is where the blessed covenant of grace comes into play. The second overarching covenant that we find in Scripture is the covenant of grace. Now remember, God relates to all of creation, all of humanity, through the covenant of works. And every person born into this world is responsible to keep that covenant of works if they want to be saved apart from a Savior. That's the only path, the means of the law, the means of the covenant of works. But we have here a second covenant called the covenant of grace. This covenant was established before the foundation of the world and first expressed in Genesis 3.15, when God promised that through the seed of the woman, Satan's head would be crushed. That seed, of course, is Jesus Christ. The covenant of grace was also expressed in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. What happened in this covenant? God made a promise to Abraham that he would make of him a great nation, that he would multiply his offspring like the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea, that that he would provide him a promised land and bless all the families of the earth through him. And there would be an outward and visible sign connected to this covenant promise covenant, namely circumcision, to identify them as members of the covenant community and point them to the saving promises that would one day be realized in the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so, dear ones, circumcision was never designed, it was never designed to be that which would save someone to save people from God's wrath and judgment. It was always designed to point them to the one who could save them, just like baptism. God sent His Son into the world, therefore, to fulfill the covenant of works on our behalf, doing what Adam failed to do in the garden, living a perfect life and fulfilling all the requirements of God's holy law. Also, He fulfilled the covenant of grace, By crushing the head of Satan on the cross, bringing salvation to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, thus giving Abraham spiritual offspring, children of promise, like we've been learning about in the book of Romans. It's not the children of Abraham, the physical offspring, that are saved. It's the spiritual offspring. Some of them are physical offspring of Abraham and spiritual offspring of Abraham, but you must be of the spiritual offspring of Abraham by grace through faith, to be saved. And also God, of course, provides a promised land, a new heavens and a new earth for His redeemed people at His return. So what does all of this then have to do with the way that we view our children? It has everything to do with the way that we view our children. In the Old Covenant, you remember, God related to Israel through covenants, Believers and their children were considered members of the covenant community. Children were not considered outsiders, as it were. No, in Genesis 17, we learn that male, eight-day-old infants received 
the sign and seal of God's covenant of grace, and thus were considered, along with all female children, members of the covenant community well before they understood what that meant. They were considered a part of the visible community of faith. They were raised in the covenant community of Israel and taught the law and promises of God from their infancy. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, in chapter 3 and verse 15, we read that Timothy, quote, from childhood had been acquainted with the sacred writings, which were able to make him wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What scriptures was Timothy studying? Studying the Old Testament. And the Old Testament was to make him wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus. You see, the Old Testament is filled with the precious covenant promises of God which point to Christ. Timothy was raised as a covenant child, taught the scriptures by his mother and grandmother, shown the way of salvation from his earliest days. Remember Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Here is a description of a Christian home. We don't want to fall into a state of mediocrity in our homes. Amen? The world is aggressively trying to disciple us. It's not trying. It is. As we look at our screens, you know, the screen time on phones is, is, is a helpful little thing and often a convicting one, right? Think about how much time we are giving to the world to tell us what it thinks, how we should be living, what we should be doing, what we should be thinking, what we should be believing. You see, here we have a beautiful description of the Christian home in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7, where parents diligently teach their children what? That the Lord is one, that he is one God and three persons, and that they shall love the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to teach and instruct our children to love the Lord, not with part of their heart and a slice of their mind and a little piece of their soul and affections, but with all. We know we fall short of doing that, as parents, we know that our children fall short of doing that as we ex exhort them to do that. And so we give praise and glory for the covenant of grace and for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, we are not seeking salvation through the covenant of works and through the means of the law. We are seeking salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, the Christian home is one where we teach and instruct our children to love the Lord with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength, all of their might. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Our, our conversation in our homes ought to be um, about more than the, the things that are going on in the world, so often the trivial things. We want our homes to be filled with conversation about the Lord. We want our f- homes to be filled with prayer with the reading of Scripture. We do this in formal times in family worship, which we'll consider more in January. But it's also in the informal times, when we're sitting around, when we're putting the kids to bed, when we're, you know, one of my professors in seminary said, the best time to talk to your kids about the Lord is right before they go to bed because they don't want to go to bed. They just want to talk to you about anything. Great. Let's take, let's take advantage of this. Let's talk about the Lord. Let's, let's do some more catechism, even though I know that the reason we're doing this right now is because you don't want to go to bed. Let's, let's do some more of that. You see, our homes are meant to be schools of piety, schools of Christ, where we are instructing our children, where we are freely talking about the Lord. It's a, it's a, a sad thing when a home that professes uh, to have faith in Christ and to believe in Him and to love Him, and yet He's never spoken of, the Scriptures are rarely, if ever, read, where there is so little of Christian piety. It's not how it's meant to be. We see here in Deuteronomy 6, it's to be something which is formal and informal. We are walking by the way, we're lying down, we're rising, we're talking about the Lord, and it's true. Children were members of the visible covenant community and thus were to be taught and nurtured and shepherded as such. They were not viewed as little unbelievers to be evangelized, but as children of the covenant to be raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Of course, that nurture, if faithfully carried out, would include clear instruction about the need to be born again, the need for faith and repentance, All, by the way, which are gifts of God's sovereign grace. Of course, these things are being emphasized and underscored. What about the New Testament? Well, in the New Testament, Christ comes to fulfill the covenant of grace through his life, death, and resurrection. All of these promises of God are yes and amen in him. Now, while the substance of God's covenant is still the same from the Old Testament, namely Christ, the sign changes from circumcision to baptism. Both signs point to Christ and his cleansing blood as the fulfillment of the covenant of grace. But circumcision has now been replaced by baptism, a sign and seal that now includes both men and women, boys and girls. With the greater blessings of the new covenant come greater blessings and the sign and seal being given to men and women and boys and girls. God still relates to his people through the covenant relationship, no longer as the nation of Israel, but as the new covenant church, as the spiritual Israel. And so that's why we call this the new covenant meal. We renew our covenant with God at this table. When we come to this table, we are first and foremost reminded that God loves us and he gave his son for us. Jesus said, do this, what? In remembrance of me. 
That's the chief thing we are to think about when we come to the table is that Christ died for you, that he died for us. And also a part of it is that we examine ourselves and we repent of our sin. But the chief thing we come to the table for is to remember what Christ has done for us. And that is a renewal of the covenant. God declaring his love and and his steadfast love and loyalty to us, his people in Christ, and us responding with overtures of love and devotion and commitment and obedience. And if we are not coming to the table with that heart, if it's just something we're checking off the list, we're not really thinking about anything, then we are coming to the table in an unworthy manner. This is a covenant renewal meal, which we partake of every Lord's Day. And so uh, the sign and seal of the covenant of grace is circumcision is replaced by by baptism. And nowhere do we see the children of believers in the New Testament excluded as members of the visible covenant community, the church. Nowhere do we see them excluded from receiving the sign and seal of the covenants of grace, a sign and seal that, like circumcision, plays a significant role in their discipleship, in their spiritual upbringing, to point them away from themselves to the gospel, to Jesus Christ for his cleansing blood, for salvation. Westminster Confession of Faith 25.2 says this, quote, The visible church consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion together with their children. Heidelberg Catechism 74, Our children are, quote, included in the covenant and church of God. Now, let me be clear here. Let me be absolutely clear. I am not saying And our confessions do not teach that a child born into a Christian family is guaranteed to be saved. Some speak like this. Sometimes when Reformed ministers uh, baptize children, they speak in ways that try to communicate some kind of religious certainty. The fact is, I don't deserve salvation, you don't deserve salvation, and none of our children deserve salvation. That's the reality. That is the reality. And so a child born into the Christian family is not guaranteed salvation just because they're part of a family. There are plenty of examples of those who have rejected God's covenant promises and denied the faith. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Jacob uh, put his faith and trust in God's promises. Uh, Esau uh, traded his inheritance for a bowl of porridge, which is what so many do today. Trading the blessings of the covenant, the promises for a metaphorical bowl of porridge. But what I am saying is that our faithful covenant-keeping God is ordinarily pleased to save sinners from within the Christian family. It's ordinarily what he does. It's ordinarily how God works. We see evidence of this all over the world. Most Christians grow up in the church and in Christian homes with at least one believing family member. That's how God is ordinarily pleased to save sinners. Joel Beakey puts it this way, quote, God's normal way of adding to his church is by saving the children of believers. What does this mean then about the way we view and raise our children? We don't view our children, therefore, as objects of evangelism like we would view the children of unbelieving and unchurched neighbors. 
No, we view them as covenant children who are to be baptized and then to be nurtured, taught, catechized, admonished, and discipled. And their baptism is a means by which they are taught the gospel, a means by which they are pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And like this morning, uh, when we witnessed uh, this baptism of Alicia Felder, we all saw those waters of baptism. And we were reminded of what that baptism means for us. John Fesco asked the question, so then how does baptism benefit an infant? Answer, since baptism is first and foremost the sign and seal of God's covenant with His people, it is the visible word of God's promise. As an infant grows up within the bosom of the church, and as her parents raise her in the fear and admonition of the Lord, the child learns who God is learns into whose name she has been baptized, watches other baptisms, and hears the gospel of Christ preached to her ears and sees the gospel preached to her eyes. The child grows up to learn that she is a part of a covenant community, the body of Christ, which has been redeemed through the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Christ. And in his ascension, Christ has poured out the life-giving Holy Spirit to redeem a bride for himself and to present her spotless and without blemish before our Heavenly Father on the last day. A person's baptism, therefore, echoes throughout her life and continues to preach the gospel to her long after the day she was given the right. What has baptism to do with discipleship in the life of a covenant child? In a word, everything. End quote. We raise our children with a joyful expectation that God either has saved them or will save them by the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, uniting them to Christ, and we never ever give up on in prayer or in our hearts or through tears on our children who have walked away from the Lord. We never give up on them. They have been marked with the waters of baptism. They have heard the promises, the seed of the gospel are in their hearts, and we cry out to God for them. We fast and pray for them. We, we continue to reach out to them with love and truth. And so often, time seems so long to us, but it is so short to God. To God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. And so as parents, as we uh, sometimes see our children walking away and, and perhaps forsaking the faith altogether, uh, we do not lose hope. We pray. We trust. We cry out to God. We bang on the door at midnight, as it were, and and ask for that bread, and we are persistent and, and committed in our prayers. We raise our children, our young children, with that joyful confidence that they will one day, by God's sovereign grace, profess faith in Christ and demonstrate a measure of maturity in that profession. And one day, in that maturity, they will partake of the Lord's table. This joyful expectation and confidence that God will save our children should never foster spiritual laziness. Quite the opposite. Knowing what God uses to save and sanctify His children, we are all the more diligent to make use of those means of grace. Baptism and the Word of God. That's our prayer for our covenant children. Children who Paul calls holy in 1 Corinthians 7.14. 
that as they grow up in the context of the church's worship and discipleship and shepherding care, as they are regularly taught the meaning of their baptism, as they are raised in a godly home, that God's Spirit would attend these means to give them new life in Christ. For it's not apart from these means that people are born again, but it is through them, as we learn from Romans 10. In the second text that I read for this evening from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, We should notice that this letter is addressed in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 1. It's addressed to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul writes to the visible and to the gathered church in Ephesus, right? And then later, he directly exhorts the children of the church in chapter 6. He does not dismiss the children as outsiders or onlookers to the visible church. No, on the contrary, he exhorts them in verse 1 as a part of the covenant community. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Did you notice those three words, in the Lord? Their obedience to their parents is to be done in the Lord. Paul speaks to them as children of the covenant who have covenant responsibilities. You would not walk up to a Hindu child or a Buddhist child or a Muslim child totally out of context and walk up and say, obey your parents in the Lord. Their first thought would be, okay, I'll obey them in the name of Allah or in the name of Buddha or in in the name of some other Hindu god, Shiva or Vishnu. You see, our children are set apart as holy and we raise them in the Lord and they obey us in the Lord. They have covenantal responsibilities as those who are within the covenant community. Even Christians who do not embrace covenant theology or deem their children to be members of the covenant community have what I call the covenantal impulse or the reformed reflex They teach their children to call upon God as Father. They include them in family worship. They instruct them to sing and to pray to God, to pay attention to the Word, to obey the Ten Commandments, and to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. They treat them as Christians from their earliest of days. And I'm glad that is the case. In other words, they treat them as covenant children in just about every way, not viewing them as headed for hell without a crisis conversion but raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and charitably assuming that they are believing these promises and growing in them. And then fathers are called in verse 4 to bring up their children in the discipline or nurture and instruction of the Lord just as they did in the old covenant and to do so so, uh, in a particular way, that is to not provoke children to anger through Uh, harshness, patterns of harshness and unloving attitudes. Once again, Joel Beakey states, God loves to work savingly among his children from generation to generation. So what should we teach our children? Very quickly, we should teach them the gospel. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, that means, first of all, that we teach them that they are Sinners. They are sinners. 
They are guilty, just as their parents are. And we teach them that the wages of sin is death. They cannot save themselves. And those who die apart from Christ will perish in hell for eternity. That that is the reality. We teach this to our children. We teach them the Ten Commandments and teach them that no one obeys them perfectly. And they are like a mirror. When we look at the Ten Commandments, we see our own sin and our great need. We not only teach them that they are guilty sinners, we teach them that Christ is a great Savior. We teach them John 3.16, that God sent His Son into the world to save them from sin and Satan and hell and death, and that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. We teach them all the glorious aspects of the gospel, that they would believe this gospel. We thirdly teach them that they must be born again by the Holy Spirit, that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, and it, it, it comes by God's grace. And by grace, they are called to repent of their sins and to trust Christ for salvation. And finally, we teach our children that there is a call to discipleship. Christ calls them as He calls their parents, by grace, to deny themselves, to take up the cross, and to follow Him. And this is such an important aspect of this as well. Because sometimes parents will leave this out, that we won't uh, impress upon them the call to Christian discipleship. And we do so from their earliest of ages, to deny self, to take up the cross, and to follow Him, to grow and to mature in Christ through grateful, Christ-centered, gospel-driven obedience, the obedience of faith. We teach them these and other important categories of the Christian faith through regular Bible teaching, catechesis, family worship, and weekly Lord's Day morning and evening services. What happens when a covenant child is in a godly home uh, uh, for 18 years? Well, that's, according to my calculations, with morning and evening worship, 1,872 worship services. 1,872 expository sermons. Approximately 3,734 psalms and hymns are sung during those 18 years with God's people. 1,872 pastoral prayers crying out to God together as a congregation. Family worship let's say five times a week in a Christian home, 4,680 times together in family worship. Now, how about we just have uh, attending church twice a year, uh, never having family worship, and sending your child to a Christian camp for a week during the summer? Do you see the difference? One is committed to Christian nurture and discipleship covenantal discipleship. The other is hoping for something, some experience to happen at a camp. And it, that kind of thing can happen. Praise God the Lord chooses to work like that uh, sometimes. But it is ordinarily through the nurture of the Christian home being faithful that we see our Christian children embracing the gospel and living for God's glory. How then, finally, should we view ourselves as parents? Well, as I mentioned earlier, not as owners of our children, but as ambassadors. This is uh, from Paul Tripp's book on parenting, which is helpful. 
He says we are not to think of ourselves as owners of our children, but as ambassadors. That's the paradigm that Tripp sets forth in his book on parenting. Ultimately, God owns our children, not us. We are entrusted with them. We are to raise them on God's terms and for His glory and not on our terms or for our glory or to live vicariously through them or to feel some deep insecurity in our own lives. We are to raise them in the Lord. When we do ambassadorial parenting, suddenly it's not about us anymore, but about the glory of God and the salvation of our children. I love it. When Tripp writes this, quote, God didn't give you your children to build your reputation, but to publicly proclaim his. And so we raise our children in the Lord. We entrust our children to the Lord. Sometimes there is cause for tough and difficult decisions in parenting. It is not an easy road. It never is for any parent. And so we approach it by faith. We look to God's word. We look to his promises. We cling to his promises. We continue to exhort our children to believe and to embrace the beauty and preciousness and truth and life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We call our children to discipleship. And when we fail, which is often, we as parents go before the Lord and even before our children and we ask for forgiveness and grace uh, for we so often need it. But we come to this, dear ones, with hearts that seek to honor the Lord, to follow his word, and not to follow the values of this world. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we do pray that we would have Christian homes, distinctively Christian homes, built firm upon the Savior. O Lord, As parents, we feel deeply our own inadequacies, our own weakness, our own failures, our own sin. And so we cast ourselves afresh upon you and your grace. We thank you for your kindness, for your mercy, and for your patience with us. And we ask for wisdom and grace as we seek to honor you in our parenting. And Lord, for those who have seen adult children walk away from you and embrace the falsehoods and lies of the world. We pray that your truth would, in the very best way, haunt them, that their baptism would haunt them in the very best way, calling them to repentance and to return to you, to receive your grace, even as the prodigal did when the father ran to him and embraced him. We pray, Lord, for these prodigals to come back, to come back and to throw themselves into your arms. Father, we thank you and we praise you.